authenticity hits lots of different spheres, right? Uh, there's the, the, the casual, there's the kind of corporate, and there's the community that takes place. Those three main spheres, there's the casual and the corporate community. And casual is where you meet someone and you feel like you can trust them and you have an authentic relationship with them. I, I knew this guy when I was young. Uh, I was 17 years old. I was buying my, my first car and he sold me this Honda Accord. And I was really excited, it was a good price. I bought it, I think it was like 300 pounds. It was just amazing. I bought this Honda Accord and I drove it for about a day. And within a day, I, the, the engine overheated. And, uh, and so I, I was just like, this is a pretty serious problem. And I went back and I said to him, you know, there's a pretty serious problem here. The car overheats like within like half the day. And he said, yeah, well, the head gasket's gone. And I was like, well, the head gasket's gone? That's, that's, that's huge. That's a massive job. And he's like, well, you should have checked it before you bought it. I was like, I bought this from you like four hours ago. I mean, you couldn't have told me this? He said, you know, lesson learned, you just need to learn. I was like, wow. This guy, uh, we, we'd gone to school together for a few years, and so I thought I had like a, a reasonable relationship with him. I thought I could trust him. I thought it was authentic, but this was not how he actually operated. In fact, uh, a couple of years later, he got engaged to this girl, and then she developed a, a form of brain cancer. And while they were engaged with her with cancer, he broke it off, said, I just can't cope, just too much stress you know, dealing with the cancer and everything else, so he broke it off with her and left her. I mean, this is the kind of like uh, authentic walk that he was going on in his life, and I hope today that he's in a different place, but back then, that kind of thing was just a, a really awkward, difficult time as well. Then there's the corporate uh, spheres of authenticity that we have, right? Um, I, I met this guy who was telling me about how his company's most likely about to be taken over by a multi-billion dollar company, and he knows already before anybody else does, and, and a couple of people at the top end obviously know. And he was just wondering, you know, he's wrestling through, does he tell somebody else that this is supposed to happen? Does he let his colleagues know? Does he let his team know? I mean, what does he do about this? And how does he try to be authentic in his walk with God, his walk with life at the same time while trying to protect the information that he knows inside there? Or, or I met this male nurse not too long ago who said to me that in the place that he works, um, uh, taking care of the elderly people, he said that, you know, he, it's, it's very difficult, and, and often he will cry with the patients that he's caring for, and because he's a male, he gets teased at his work because he's crying, like he's not enough of a man because he's crying through the stuff, and so he says, well, this is me being as authentic in my workplace, in my corporate place, as much as I can be inside there. And then there's the community, right? There's the, the kind of like the family and, and the situations we have. And you, you try to be as authentic as you can in your family. You know, like when you, you're sitting down with your loved one and, and you, you, know, you ask the question, was it good for you? Or do you say, you know, was it good for me? You, you know, you ask that question about the food that you're eating uh, because I know that's what you were thinking. Uh, and so uh, you, those are kind of questions that you have to sometimes engage, right? You have to talk about this kind of stuff. And some people have that kind of relationship where they can dialogue about that kind of stuff. And, uh, and you have to be able to be as authentic and honest as it is. But we have so many different levels of that and so many different places of that that it's very difficult for us because when we're young, we are pretty free. And then somehow, as we get older, 
we become contained and caged and protective about everything that we're doing. And we're just worried about everything we're doing. And so I feel that there's something underneath all of this authenticity that's actually kind of breaking away. Maybe it's our culture, you would say. Maybe it's just the way that we've been brought up and our understanding. Or maybe, as what I believe it is, is that we don't understand truly what it is when it's connected to God. Because I think if you have an authentic relationship with God, everything else starts to fall into place much easier. When you start to understand who God has called you to be, when you start to understand what God has named you, when you start to understand how much you need God, you start to respond differently to that. So, John chapter 8, verse 12, page 990. This is a text for today. John chapter 8, verse 12, page 990. So, if you have the Pew Bibles, pull them out. Mark up this text, write it inside that this is the text that I hope you, you studied during the week here. Uh, and we're dealing with these I am statements of Jesus. And this is just our sixth one that we're dealing with. Next week's our final seventh statement that we're looking at here. And this is what he says in John chapter 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And what Jesus is saying here, and it's just, it's a beautiful text, and it's wonderful, and people read this text often, or they'll hear this thing, and they'll just immediately say, well, of course, he is the light of the world. He's bright, he's energetic, he's beautiful, he is this kind of way. But the context of the story is, is that he's saying, I am the light of the world because there is darkness in the world. There is pain in the world. There is somebody covering up things in the world. There is somebody saying you cannot be an authentic follower of God. You cannot be authentic in your life. You can't trust people. You have to hide everything all the time. And God says, I am the light of the world, and I'm going to come, and I'm going to do two things. I'm either going to confront you, or I'm going to challenge you. Now, people are really comfortable with a challenge, right? Challenge is okay. Confronting, Jesus confronting us, not too good, not very cool, not very PC. So we tend to move more towards that. In fact, let me test, test you out on this and see how you feel about this. You can just uh, shout it out when we get to the question here. So it goes here, Noah builds an ark, right? And God says to him, I need you to build an ark because there is going to be a flood. Is that God confronting or is that God challenging Noah? Challenge, right? I think so too. Uh, God goes to Pharaoh and he says to, through Moses, said, say, Pharaoh, you know, let my people go, which makes me always want to sing a song, but let my people go, all right? Is that, is, is that a, a confrontation or was that a challenge? You think it's both? Because he was Pharaoh and that kind of tension inside there. Good. King David, when uh, Nathan comes to King David and says to him, you know that little ducky that you stole, right? Uh, I think that's inappropriate. Uh, and so is that a, a confrontation or is that a challenge? Sorry. That was confusing. What was it? A confrontational challenge. Confrontation, all right then. Uh, the road to Emmaus, when Jesus is walking with the disciples, as I believe uh, that they were probably husband and wife, and he's walking with the, that couple on the road to Emmaus, as he's walking with them and he tells them about what's going on, was that a confrontation or a challenge? Challenge, all right. Is it, is it the tone that makes a difference here? That like if I say it, if I say, you need to change, it's a challenge, but if I say, you need to change, that's a confrontation? Um, the road to Gaza, when, uh, when, the, when Philip went to meet the Ethiopian, was that a confrontation or was that a challenge? Challenge. And then the road to Damascus, when Jesus confronted Paul, who was then Saul, was that a confrontation or that a challenge? 
Oh, I don't know, I don't know. Well, here's the thing. When Jesus comes and he describes this situation and he says that he is the light of the world, he's using language that they really understood very well. I mean, he went straight to the point. He was not, it wasn't like, oh, he's just a flashlight. He's just like 10,000 lumens. Oh, he's just going to light it up because we don't have electricity at nighttime. He captured something that they understood well from creation. God said that he was the light that actually lit this entire earth up. That's what he did from the very beginning. The pillar of cloud and the fire at nighttime was with the light of God was inside it. The light on Mount Sinai that lit up the entire mountain was there. The light on the mercy seat was all over there. The light that filled the entire Solomon's temple this light that actually came down with the angels in Bethlehem and lit up the hill and sang that Jesus is coming, this light is the light of God. And so when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he's saying, I am one with God, right? And watch what the response of the religious leaders at the time, verse 13 of John chapter 8. So turn with me back there. It says this. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. I actually reflected on this a little bit, and I thought to myself, I'm just gonna, because of uh, the joy of not having hair. Um, <laughs> I reflected on the testimony of this particular thing here and the way that he described this, and I thought this is actually a very British answer to a complex question. See, Jesus says, I am the light of the world, and, and the equivalent would be if you were in the Houses of Parliament, and somebody wanted to say that what the other person had said was not true, they would probably say something to the effect like, um, Madam Chair or Mr. Chair, I, I, I do believe that the right honorable member of Beckenham has been misinformed, right? And by saying you've been misinformed, you're basically saying, they're a bold-faced liar. That's what he's saying, right? So this is what they're saying. They say to Jesus, Jesus, you know, I, I, I really hear your testimony, but I don't think that's really true. You are a liar. That's what he says. That's what they say to him. Jesus reply, this is really quite good. He says to them in verse 14, not implying that Jesus' reply are not very good any other time. Uh, I just realized as I said that. Uh, but implying that this one here was actually quite funny. Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I come from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me, because they are one. Jesus says, you have no idea. You tell me I'm a liar? You don't even know where I come from. You don't know where I'm going. In fact, you don't know where you come from. You don't know where you're going. But I do, because I and the Father are one. And he is the one who brings light on this. I, I appreciated this because I felt that the rest of the text here deals with either a confrontation or challenge all the way through. And I'll let you wrestle through that at some point yourselves inside there. There's a great story told uh, in The Importance of Being Foolish by Brennan Manning. Anybody ever read that book? Yeah? It would be well worth you reading the book. It's called The Importance of Being Foolish by Brennan Manning. And uh, Brennan tells a story, it's, he's repeated it in two of his books, uh, but uh, he, he tells a story that he actually saw this take place. Um, he went to a re, uh, an alcoholic rehab center. It was in a very small town in America, and uh, 25 men were sitting in a, in a U-shape. Um, 
sorry, not sitting, they were standing in a U-shape inside this room. And in the middle of this room um, was uh, a man called Max. Um, O'Connor was the one who was leading this entire process. O'Connor was a, a trained counselor, he's a therapist. He himself is a recovering addict as well, and a, a recovering alcohol, uh, alcohol addict as well. And so he's there as well. And so there's 25 people sitting down in this U-shape. Max is in the middle. Max is just a, a, a nominal Christian. Max has five children. He is a CEO of a really large company, and he's a founder of this incredible company, and he's very gifted. When he walks in a room, he owns the room, he owns the place, he knows exactly where he is, he knows what he's doing. And O'Connor begins the conversation with Max in the middle as Max is sitting down right there in this chair as they're all standing around him. And O'Connor says these words to him. How long have you been drinking like a pig, Max? That's the opening sentence that they said to Max. Max says, well, that's not quite fair, is it? I mean, come on. And he's just all kind of talking it through. And O'Connor says, how many times? And after a while of back and forth, back and forth a little bit, Max eventually confesses that he drinks eight glasses of alcohol every day. And two in particular just before he goes to bed, but he has eight glasses every day. O'Connor's reply, once Max confesses to these eight glasses, is he basically says, you're a liar. And Max says, my word is my bond. Wherever I go, 28 years I've been running my company. When I give my word, they know who I am. I'm an authentic person. I told you the truth. Matt Conacher says to him, you are a liar. Max says to him, this is not right. It's not good. And they push back and forth, back and forth. Eventually, Max admits that he has a bottle of alcohol in his suitcase, a bottle of alcohol in his bathroom cabinet, a bottle of alcohol in his nightstand, a bottle of alcohol in his office drawer, a bottle of alcohol in his car glove compartment. He's got alcohol stashed everywhere that he goes and he's drinking it all over the place. O'Connor says to him at the end of that dialogue, says to him, you are a liar. Max says, I've had enough of this, starts to yell at him, swears at him, talk, looks at these 25 men and says, you don't know what you're talking about, tries to walk out of the room. He's that angry about it. O'Connor calls Hank O'Shea. Hank O'Shea runs a bar downtown and uh, talks to Hank O'Shea, puts him on speakerphone and says, Hank, I've got Max right here. We're talking to him and he tells us he only drinks a little bit. Could you tell us how much he drinks at your bar? And Hank O'Shea says, yeah, he spends $100 every single afternoon, every day, seven days a week. Max is livid with this. And O'Connor says to him, you are a liar. Max is still confronted by this. And then O'Connor says to him, what about your children? You ever done anything bad to your children? Max says, no, I love my five children. They're fantastic. I love them all. And O'Connor says to him, you are a liar. He calls Max's wife, and he puts Max's wife on the phone, on the speakerphone, and he asks her to tell about what happened at Christmas time, just the last Christmas. And she starts to tell the story on the speakerphone that Max, you know, on Christmas Eve, uh, took their daughter, one of their kids, uh, to go buy a pair of shoes, gave her $40, drove to the shoe shop, and said to her, you go in, you buy any pair of shoes you want, and you come back. And she took the $40 and went into the shop and came back out and showed her dad and said, Dad, look at these pair of shoes. And he said, oh, they're so good. They're beautiful. Put them down, sat down. And she said to her, Daddy, Daddy, you're the best daddy in the world. I love you so much. And he said, that's fine. Let's go home. And they drove home. And on the way home, Max stops at this bar. 
It's three o'clock in the afternoon. He says, hey, just stay here. I'm going to pop in. I'll be back in a second. He pops into the bar, closes the car, obviously leaves the engine running because it's eight degrees outside and leaves the engine running. It's three o'clock in the afternoon. At midnight, Max returns to the car. She has, the car has died because there's no more gas left in it. The car is frozen. She has severe frostbite on her hands and her fingers where now she, as a result of that, loses, amputates two fingers, ends up becoming permanently deaf. And Max is livid about this. And O'Connor says to him, you are a liar. Max falls over on the floor and he starts to scream uncontrollably. He's angry and he's shrieking. And the 25 men literally, quietly walk out of the room. Brandon Manning says that O'Connor then turns around, comes back, sees Max on all fours on the floor, puts his foot in his rib cage and kicks him over onto his back. And he tells him, crawl out of here, go out the window, the door, we're done. Just get out of here because I don't keep liars in this place. And then he walks off. Now, you're probably thinking to yourself, my goodness, that's hard, right? It's hard. But this particular process of this particular group here is that they believe that recovery only works with this particular type of alcoholic person when they realize that they're powerless to alcohol. And sure enough, Max eventually got to the point where he begged to join the program. And they allowed him to join the program. And uh, Friday night, uh, before the final night of this entire completion program, Fred tells the story how Fred, this guy, walks by Max's room and sees Max sitting in his chair and he's reading the book uh, Watership Down. So he says to Max, hello, and Max doesn't respond, so he walks into the room to talk to Max. And Fred says that Max just stared at this book for like several minutes. And eventually, when he had the moment, he raised his face up with tears running down his face. And he said, I just prayed for the first time. And since that day, since that recovery program, Max hasn't drunk again, hasn't touched alcohol, has stayed sober for his life until this day here as well. I think the difficulty, and why I tell you the story is this, is that the difficulty is that Satan is very good at teaching us to be liars, teaching us to not be authentic, teaching us to cover up as much of the world that we actually live in. In fact, we are confronted by this, and it's very difficult for us, and we run away from it all the time. So I'm going to invite Jessica to come up here, and we're going to spend some time on these questions, because I think that I'd be curious to know what kind of areas or questions or thoughts you have. I can grab it. That you have wrestled with, whether it comes to faith, whether it comes to church, whether it comes to anything that we do here. And let's see, if you have a Connect card and you wrote something down and you want to put your hand up, all right, let's have the kids, Who's, who can get, grab some for us? Jack, where's Jackson? Jackson, you want to see if anybody's got a hand up like this, grab a piece of paper and bring it up here. Shelby, you want to try the other side there? Let's see if you see anybody holding up a question. Well, let's bring it up here. So Any you have your first text question. Okay. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm not. It is, why doesn't faith in God get any easier as we get older? I think that's a really great question. I, I personally haven't found that faith gets uh, harder as we get older. 
but I have found that faith has grown as I get older. And so I believe that the reason maybe it gets actually harder to, for us to reflect on really comes down to a realization that God is much, 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 much larger than anything we could ever comprehend. And if you're going to embrace God, if you're going to discover who God is, um, it's going to take a lot of shifts in your life. So yeah, it should get harder in some shape or form. On a lighter note, this is a would you rather from what you oh, yeah. brought up last week. I would, would you not. rather Would you rather leave a dog outside in a blizzard or let it sleep with you in your bed? Answer carefully. I would let that dog sleep in my bed with me, and then I would find a home for it. Very quickly. Just letting you know, straight up, all right. <laughs> in case that question came from my wife. <laughs> this one is blank. I'm gonna, guess that, I'm gonna guess that question. Okay, no, guess, no. guess it. No. Um, this question is, how strong is your faith in God? I, I, don't, I don't question the existence of God. I used to. Uh, I don't question the existence of God. I, um, I feel that I've gone through a lot of different things in my life that have really been what I would consider crucibles. And these crucibles have really shaped my faith in God. So for me, I have no doubt that God is real. Uh, I have no doubt that this word is inspired. I think uh, what, I, what I feel is that I'm constantly growing in my knowledge of God, and so what I try to do is to not accept the picture I have of God right now as the ultimate truth, but to say there must be more. Because if he is God, which I do believe he is, then I can only see a speck of that. All right, this one um, will paraphrase because the term potluck was used, oh, so I'll sub it for fellowship lunch. <laughs> Should I feel guilty for not joining in in fellowship lunch? You know, somebody said to me that they're a bit, they're a bit of an introvert and they don't really don't like that. And then somebody said to me that they don't like it uh, actually uh, because they're just worried about other people touching their food. Um, <laughs> I, I totally get that. I totally get that. I don't think that you should feel guilty for not joining fellowship lunch. I don't think it's required. Uh, I think that fellowship lunch works for some people, life group works for some other people, Bible study works for some people, worship works for some other people. I know people who come to this church just for the Bible study and some people come just for the worship. Both of you need to work out you know, how you can benefit from the other things that we actually offer here because it does do good. But no, it's not required, so don't feel guilty. All right. How can we bring about a truce between Seventh-day Adventist doctrine and science, especially life science and earth science? I think the difficulty is that we have often tried to use the Bible to, to define uh, what science is. And the Bible was written to define uh, a picture of who God's character is. And God is the one who decides what science is. So science is something that we decide based on the world that we know and the world that we don't know. I mean, our science is only as good as the universe that we understand and can comprehend. And we ourselves in the last four or 5,000 years have grown tremendously inside there. So I think if we could actually have that kind of mutual respect inside there, that'd be great. I, I do believe that God created us to be very creative and to be scientific and to ask hard questions. And God's not afraid of anything being asked and anything being searched. But sometimes I think we would like, we would like our scientific answers to, to match our preconceived ideas of how the Bible's supposed to be. And if we allow the text to take us to God, God will actually take us to a true and healthier science.
This one comes from your wife. Oh, that was supposed to be private, but that's good. Thanks for the trust. <laughs> uh, so she won't be saying anybody else's name after this. <laughs> no, just Becky. Should you try to cover up the fact that you are a jerk or just act like your jerk self? <laughs> I, Thank you for asking, Becky. <laughs> I am not always a jerk, uh, but I am a jerk occasionally. Said and in the interest of authenticity and all. I know, I know. <laughs> no, she's right, she's right. She's, unfortunately, she's right. Uh, and in fact, actually, she, she says this thing to me where she says that I have this face that I do. Uh, and I'm like, what face are you talking about? And she says, you know, like she's on the treadmill, I'm talking to her, and, and, sh and we'll be discussing something, and she'll immediately say, what's with the face? And I'm like, what face? And so the other day, I was in the car, and uh, I was with Jonah, and Jonah was sitting here, and I, I think it was like early Sunday morning or something, I said to him, hey, did you, did you wash your hair this morning? Which is a question you ask your children all the time. And, and Jonah just goes like this, Right, it just looks at me like this. And I said, what's with the face? He doesn't say, he doesn't say anything. Apparently, he was imitating my face when I asked him the question, uh, which was not answering the question, by the way. So yes, yes, I know. I am a jerk, uh, and yeah, I have to work through that, truthfully. All right. What happens if we have to work on Sabbath? How does Jesus handle that? Uh, he probably expels you at that point, no. Okay, here's the difficulty with Sabbath. Um, we want electricity, and we want our toilets to flush, and we want somebody to, get on, to drive the bus so I can get on the bus so I can come to church. And we have created kind of like a paradigm of Sabbath that doesn't really make sense in the world we live in today. Um, God says that Sabbath is a day where you're supposed to spend uh, this dedicated time in celebration of community and life together. It is resistance against all the pressure of what you have on your life all the time. And I think that if you take Sabbath as a day of trust in God and say, could it be a day that I actually don't need to work, then yes, do that. So I encourage you to not work on Sabbath, absolutely. Is Sabbath actually a day where we work like crazy here at church? Well, yeah, but there's things called dispensations, right? Where we kind of like let things go, right? Because on Sabbath, we can have the deacons work three hours sweating really hard, getting everything done. That's fine, right? So the difficulty is that what we define as work, um, and the tension always comes down to what do you define as work and what do you define as, as spending time with God. I personally think that if you can find a way to not do it, then don't do it on Sabbath. Then actually spend the time in community, then it's a good thing. Um, and if you're struggling specifically about some particular role, then let's talk about that entirely. Yeah. All right, this one gets pretty deep. Is As a Seventh-day Adventist, how do we deal with today's acrimonious political environment? Next Sabbath, um, I'm going to talk about affiliation, and I will talk about uh, Democrats and Republicans, and I will talk about detention, and we'll address that next Sabbath. So you'll have to come back. All right. Tell me again, why is there so much suffering in the world? The easy answer that we've always tried to say is because God has given us choice, right? God gives us choice, we follow Satan, and, uh, and therefore because we follow Satan, there's suffering in the world. The difficult answer is to recognize that out of the ascension, Jesus took back planet Earth into his control and Satan was banished from that control of planet Earth. And at that point, 
He, the roaring dragon, Revelation chapter 12, has been going crazy because he knows that his time is short and he's doing even worse things that are more evil than ever before to create suffering. That's the hard answer for us to realize that there is a huge cosmic battle going on behind the scenes all the time. I think day to day, it's very difficult to, to live in that tension all the time because you don't see it, right? You only see it when you're a jerk to your husband or your wife. You only see it when you, you, know, you are rude to somebody or you do something bad or you're not authentic with that. And that's the parallel tension inside there. So I believe the reason why there's suffering inside the world is because God is living out and suffering with us all the consequences of us, of a rebellion saying, I don't want to trust God. I don't want to live with him. I actually want to see what I can do if I just live the selfish life. And until we come to the point, which I, I do believe will be soon, where God will actually say, hey, enough's enough. Now is the time. All this will be restored. For the sake of time, we'll go through the rest of the written ones, and then the texting ones we will get back to you, and we can reply to that after the service as well this next week. Um, speaking of authenticity, how authentic do you consider the members of this church's leadership and this congregation in general? How authentic do I consider the members of this church and its leadership? Mm -hmm. um, I think they're as authentic as you are. Hmm. Yeah, we're all humans. And um, whoever's asking that question, you know that you've got issues as well. And I've got issues as well. Some of them are told by my wife. Um, <laughs> But I, I think that, uh, I think what I love about the elders in this church here is that uh, they're not perfect. They are honest people who are struggling to discover the will of God. Um, I think what I love about us as pastors in this church here is that we're doing the same thing. You know, I, I was going to mention this comment about, did you see when Anderson came to the children's story today? And he, he ran up, and as he ran up, he put his foot there on the step, and then he was looking at Ellie and telling her about the cookie he had, or Harper, or something. And I thought, that's a liar. Uh, <laughs> that's how a liar comes to staff meetings. Uh, <laughs> he'll stand there uh, for the staff meetings. I love that as pastors, we are honest with each other. I love that we, we mess up, and we need to actually forgive each other for things that we do, and we can be short with each other, and we can still still process that way, but authentic, uh, a desire to follow God, I really do believe that most of us here are trying that. Are you seeing this congregation change in ways that you did not expect? Uh, absolutely, um, absolutely. I, I have been moved and inspired so many times by the incredible incredible things that people say, the incredible things that people do, to actually support and lift each other up, and the extra miles that people go, and the things that they will be engaged in each other's life, yeah. I do feel that this congregation as a whole is growing together, and we are becoming uh, a better family. And we're becoming a better family where we're honest with each other, uh, and yet we're kinder with each other. You know, I, I remember people who would confront people coming into the front of this church here um, about the way that they dressed and didn't think that it was appropriate for them to come to church dressed a particular way. I love that it doesn't happen. I love that actually you can come as you are, work it out, and we have people decked out from jogging shoes to suits, you know, the whole way through, and I think that's actually what a community should be, uh, come where you are. If you were not a pastor being paid to study and preach, what would you do with your life? I, I actually contemplated being a lawyer. That's the thing I would have probably gone into, some kind of uh, litigation. Not the IRS, uh, Sean. Uh, I know you're like, ah! <laughs> well, I don't know, maybe. Um, 
but I, I really did like law. Uh, I really did. I love case law. I love the history that actually defines, you know, the way we go forward. So, yeah, something along that line. If the Holy Spirit leads to all truth, does that mean we don't yet have all the truth and that <clears throat> we have to modify our own beliefs in the process? Yes, we do. This is very difficult for us, uh, and, it's, and it's very unique to Adventism because we are non-credal. And by non-credal means that we are saying the Bible is what we trust and the Bible is what we go to, which means that as we grow, we learn more and we will adapt and we will change because truth is more. Truth is Jesus Christ. That is what truth is. And the more you discover Jesus, the more you know. Now, if you think you know all truth, uh, then you are Jesus and that's not true. So truth is Jesus, and if you want to know truth, then you have to know more of Jesus, and you will learn about Jesus for the rest of eternity. And that's why I think we actually do change. This is a question Emmanuel wrote his name, and he would like to know, would you rather give 35 cats or have 35 cats? Give 35 cats or have 35 cats? You mean like cats, like meows? Like, those kind of things? <laughs> I think I'd rather give away 35 cats any day. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, do, we'll do one more, because I think this is a great question, and considering authenticity is, what should someone do if they have been through something that is so intense that the people around them can't hear their story without reacting negatively or judging them? You know, I'm surprised uh, that nobody's asked any of the difficult questions. Um, I actually was hoping that you were going to be, like, put it out there. Uh, but that one kind of gives me room for a little bit. Um, because there are things, right? Theological things, there are practices, there are understandings, there are tensions that exist in our church that we don't really want to talk up here. Um, we want to talk about them one-to-one. -one. But I believe that if you have something going on in your life that or you know something in your life that just the presence alone or the subject alone causes that kind of tension um, with others in the community, then, then we have to find a way to actually not make that attention. We as a community have to find a way to not make that attention. We have to find a way to be able to confront difficult things uh, in honesty. And, uh, and I think that's what God is calling us to. And when he declares himself as the light of the world, he's not saying, come here with this problem and just stare as you are, he's saying, come here and let me take you over here. Um, we as a community have to be the kind of people who live over here in a place of grace and mercy and justice, and that is the journey that God is calling us to. All right, we'll deal with the other questions by text, and I'm gonna just wrap up here a little bit with uh, some passages that I wanted to share with you, and, uh, and then we'll close up for today. Thank you, Jessica. And thank you for your questions, and feel free to keep on sending them in or to ask them as, as time goes on as well. This text that we read today about being the light was bookends between two passages. And I don't know if you read the passage before, you read the passage afterwards, but the story that happens before is basically where this woman is caught in adultery, and Jesus confronts, and he also challenges the leaders around him. And he challenges her, and he confronts her with what's going on in her life, and he forgives her, and he takes her from here to over there. And by the end of the passage here in chapter 8, verse 31, the Jews were still worried about this, so Jesus said to them, 
who have believed, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And Jesus says the same thing to them. He says, I am the truth, and I'm the one who's going to set you free. So in between, where he's trying to describe, I'm the light of the world, he says, look, no matter how difficult it is, no matter how unrecoverable the situation may be, I can take you over here. And just so you know, over here, this truth, this is Jesus Christ. If you continue the Bible story all the way through, the next chapter is John chapter 9, and it deals with the blind guy. So he goes from light to actually give them sight, to be able to say to them, I want to show to you where you need to go in sight here. And if you understand the Bible's concept of light and sight, then you'll understand this, that the heart, we refer to the heart, you give your life to Jesus in your heart, the heart is actually an understanding of where the eye is. The eye is the sight inside here. So when Paul says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, and this is page 111 in your Bibles, but Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says this, I will fix my eyes on Jesus, right? I fix my eyes on Jesus because by fixing my eyes on Jesus, I know he is the finisher of my faith. He is the perfecter of my faith. He is the one who's going to hold my faith together. This is what Paul experienced on the road to Damascus. His authentic walk with God. Because he felt he was authentic over here, right? He was following God by crucifying and persecuting all the Jews who would be followers of Jesus. He felt he knew all truth. He probably went to church and everybody thought, this is the person who actually has everything together. And he authentically, authentically followed error as hard as he could. And then God comes along to him and says to him, I'm going to confront you and I'm going to challenge you on that road that what you thought was authentic was actually a desire for yourself to be in power and control over people's lives. You weren't being authentic over there. You were just a power-hungry, crazy maniac attacking people. And when he saw Jesus, when he saw Jesus, his life changed. So much so that from then on, all of his texts, you read it in Galatians, you read it in Colossians, you read it in 2 Corinthians, you read it all the way through in his text, and Paul is constantly saying, not me, but Jesus. The more I focus on Jesus, the more I'm more authentic. The more I realize that the things that I do, I cannot control, but Jesus can change those inside me. So my challenge to you is to actually go back to Jesus. Say, God, make me an authentic person. Person in private and public is the same. And the things that I got going on that are wrong, let me fix them as well. But let me have you fix them inside my life. Let me pray for you, Jesus. You know who we are. You know the struggles that we have in our life. God, you are nudging us, but today I know that you are actually confronting us and challenging us as well. So God, with the confrontation challenge, may we be able to listen and respond with either one, with whatever issue we have in our life, and say, I will follow you at all costs. I will follow you wherever you take me, because from here to there is the place that we should be. In Jesus' name.